Their job is to retool, repurpose, bend the agencies and institutions that are in their grasp to serve the purposes of the network. COVID-19, cocaine, mafia, are the names for different types of lives. And as movement restrictions, both on borders and within countries, make it ever more difficult to move independently, much of this movement will be smuggler facilitated, increasing the profits of the smuggling industry. You know, hitmen you can hire sometimes for $100 a week, you know, paying someone to go and murder people. The market for, for hitmen is crazy in Latin America. COVID-19 has led to an increase in the targets of vulnerabilities in one of the most vulnerable groups online, which is children. You need to target this crime because it kills people. It doesn't kill, kill them with bullets or snares or knives. It kills them with viruses. It's not simply with, you know, just passing legislation or dealing with a certain organized group that controls the production of medicine. There's a lot of factors involved that indicate that probably this problem is going to be only exacerbated by a health emergency like COVID-19. There's more cocaine than ever before. Colombia is producing more cocaine than the world has ever seen. What's happening is, is that the cartels have kind of morphed. The drug traffickers have changed. We now have a new style drug trafficker that's called an invisible. And they were dumped somewhere in one of the slums in Nairobi. These were around 29 women who are actually left with no uh, travel documents, no identification documents. Organized crime cannot function without corrupt officials allowing it to happen or being paid for it to happen. Over the past few months, we've been looking at the impact that the COVID-19 outbreak has had on different transnational organised crimes. We've covered counterfeits, the illegal wildlife trade, human smuggling, cocaine trafficking, corruption, cybercrime, human trafficking and heroin trafficking. We've drawn on the experience and expertise of journalists, analysts and researchers from across the world. We've visited all continents with the intention of showing how illicit markets are intimately linked and interwoven and how, in this time of unparalleled crisis, these organised criminal networks and illicit markets have reacted. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Welcome to The Impact. This week we're going to be doing something different. We're going to be taking a look back over the past few months, but also look forward to what we expect to happen next, given that COVID is still very much with us. So I've gathered together a group of GI experts and analysts to discuss a few topics from the perspective of different regions. We have Tuesday Ritano, the Deputy Director of the GI. We have Nirmal Ghosh, the US Bureau Chief for The Straight Times and member of the GI Network of Experts. We have Joyce Kimani, the Observatory Coordinator for East and Horn of Africa at the GI. And then we have GI analysts Guillermo Vasquez, Lies Tagziria and Ana Paula. So hello to everyone. Well, let's dive straight in. Tuesday Ritano, Deputy Director of the GI. What were we expecting to happen to organised crime during the COVID crisis and what have we actually seen? Well, I think we all understood that this pandemic was an enormous disruptor 
And certainly the initial analysis around organized crime and a lot of the media coverage focused on the fact that we hoped or we thought we might see significant disruptions to illicit supply chains. We thought that there was some speculation, for example, that drug precursors from China wouldn't be able to come out, which would really interfere with global drug markets. There was a lot of concern or certainly a lot of media speculation around whether or not drug dealers at the street level would be able to get drugs to their clients. We hoped for seeing the lockdowns that came with the pandemic, preventing people accessing illicit goods from poachers hitting on endangered species. But fundamentally, I have to say that illicit markets have proved a lot more robust than some of our initial analysis would have suggested. In most cases, drug trafficking has continued relatively much at the same scale that it had done prior to the pandemic. And while there was an initial perhaps freeze as borders closed very abruptly, criminal markets have essentially either been able to warehouse the goods that they had or move them through other means. And there were definitely distinct vulnerabilities in global trade, the imperative to get PPE and medical equipment around to keep necessary and essential goods moving around the world at a time when ports were more vulnerable, when they were understaffed, and when law enforcement attention was elsewhere, that meant that really that disruption never occurred. Of course, in the early stages of this pandemic, there were some who speculated that it could lead to positive change in combating different illicit markets. Could you expand on that? Initially, the relationship between the illicit wildlife trade and the disease itself led some to speculate that perhaps we might see a new momentum towards ending the illicit wildlife trade to reducing demand for some of the more risky species and the more risky vendor practices. But I would say equally that's begun to fade away, though perhaps some of my colleagues will comment differently. We also hope that it might prove an opportunity to break down criminal governance. We wrote a blog early at the beginning that said that now would be the time to really insert the state when people are very vulnerable because they're seeing economic contractions, they're losing their jobs, they're being locked in, their needs are greater. I would say arguably there, unfortunately, also, we didn't really see that. Governments were too preoccupied with addressing the health crisis as a whole to begin to look at the most vulnerable populations. And I would say, finally, we hoped that there would be a real opportunity as a result of the pandemic to reshape some of the questions around inequality and how global resources are redistributed. There were some moves by some governments in Europe to try and prevent companies who had significant resources or had registered offshore or in tax havens to prevent them receiving economic assistance that was being given as stimulus payments by the state. And a real question there is, would you see, given how much the pandemic has impacted on the most vulnerable, would we see a move towards greater equality? I'm afraid I think that also hasn't really come into play. So I'd say we lost opportunities over the course of the pandemic, whereas criminal markets proved themselves to be far more robust than we had originally speculated. As a final point, I think the one thing that where expectations were very much met by reality was the extent to which human vulnerability has been exacerbated. So we picked up on a number of exploitation-based illicit markets, human trafficking, human smuggling, that have only increased over the course of the pandemic. And some of the case studies that have come out about shifts into online child exploitation, the growth of those markets, the increasing amount of labor trafficking and sex trafficking that has gone on, the vulnerability of migrants to criminal exploitation in various places over the course of the pandemic have been really troubling. And that is, I think, a sad 
vilification of the system as a whole, that even though we could see these kinds of difficulties coming, we haven't been able to take steps to prevent them. Thank you very much, Tuesday. Lias, if I can turn to you, you're an analyst here at the GI and you led on the COVID Crime Watch newsletter. From your research into organised crime in Europe specifically, what do you think the legacy of COVID is and will be on organised crime moving forward? So when looking at the impact of coronavirus on organised crime in Europe, I guess the obvious place to start is, is in Italy. The lockdown in Italy, which was one of the longest lockdowns anywhere in the world, actually, has had a really catastrophic impact on the economic well-being of both Italian citizens generally, but also businesses in Italy. And so when we look at how organized crime and how organized criminal groups in Italy have sought to exploit the pandemic, there are really two dimensions to look at. So firstly, there's the issue of the so-called mafia welfare. And this is essentially partly what we mean when we talk about criminal governance. So at the most basic level, this is where mafiosi hand out food packages to those whose finances have have taken a particular hit during the pandemic. And the entire purpose of this mafia welfare is essentially to elicit social consent, to curry favour with local communities. So they help them out. And then further down the line, they might ask them to store some drugs for them or ask them to use their homes as a meeting place or even to harbour a fugitive for them. But on the other hand, and actually perhaps more importantly, given the the economic power that these mafia groups leverage, is the risk of a further infiltration of these criminal actors into the legitimate economy. And what are the mafia groups actually trying to achieve? I mean, the ultimate objective of any criminal group is to legitimise themselves, right? And they do this by laundering their illicit proceeds in the formal economy. So what they do is they offer loans to companies that are on the verge of bankruptcy, which the business owners accept because often they don't have any choice, given that formal credit channels refuse to finance them. And then when they can't pay them back, often because the mafiosi have sort of hiked up the interest rates, they then take over the company. And actually, Italian government statistics recently released show that during the lockdown period, while most crime rates have reduced, reports of loan sharking have increased. And I mean, these aren't, uh, these aren't hypotheticals. These, there have been reports of criminal associates literally standing outside of banks, offering loans to customers as they walk out who couldn't get a loan from the bank. In Milan, over 2,000, 2,500 businesses exchanged hands during the lockdown period. And obviously, I mean, a lockdown period is where generally you wouldn't expect many people to be investing due to high levels of uncertainty and the shutdown of most economic activity. So this suggests that all of the warnings that were made prior to or sort of at the, at the outbreak of the pandemic of mafia exploiting the pandemic to launder money in the formal economy were actually well-founded. So on both levels, the community level with mafia welfare, and then also from the economic financial perspective, mafia groups are often the only option for struggling individuals and, and struggling business owners. And in the absence of state help or legitimate credit channels, the as the um, Italian anti-mafia public prosecutor described it, the only tap that is always open and willing to supply water is the mafias. And that's a worrying trend that people are willing to turn to organised crime groups as they see that state help isn't forthcoming. Joyce Kamani, if I can turn to you, you're the GI's Observatory Coordinator for Eastern Horn of Africa. Have we seen examples of criminal gangs stepping into a power vacuum left by the state? 
One of the most interesting things for me has been that in certain areas, just like in Italy, guns have been reaching out to the community. For example, in Kibera, there are so many guns who have set up hand washing bays and they've also been going out to reach to the people. And I think one of the most interesting things for me still was seeing gang training community members on COVID awareness and what to do when, when you have COVID and even giving out numbers, emergency numbers to the people. Thanks, Joyce. And we've heard examples like this in other parts of the world as well. Anna Paula, you're an analyst here at the GI and your expertise is Brazil. We certainly heard in the early stages of this pandemic that, among other things, criminal groups in Brazil were actually enforcing lockdown. Yes. Right in the beginning of the crisis, we saw the case of organized criminal gangs pushing curfews in various favelas of Rio de Janeiro. This evidence demonstrates how, in the absence of the state, the criminal organized groups could step up and show their capacity to fill the gaps left by state. This dynamic is also not new, but of course, it's increased with the COVID-19 crisis once the population is feeling more vulnerable with less access to their livelihoods because they lost their jobs eventually. So criminal groups would step in and provide with supplies such as medicaments, masks and cash handouts. Guillermo, if I could turn to you, you're a senior analyst here with the GI. What are you seeing in Central America and are we seeing similar examples of criminal governance? Yes, it's similar, but not the same across the board. In El Salvador, gangs have shown a lot more resilience to the COVID-19 pandemic as they have, for example, increased the extortion payments for those businesses that are essential and remained open during the pandemic. And they even, for example, adapted to the curfew by sending Uber cars under the payroll of gangs to collect payment. They also contested, for example, the governance or the curfew or in a way enforced the curfew along with the state authorities by using force and violence against citizens that were outside. Videos and audios were released during the pandemic warning citizens about going out. But the same cannot be said, for example, in, in Guatemala, where some gangs have shown various degrees of stress due to the pandemic and to the lack of resources. For example, they were forced to waive extortion payments to some market tenants, and the lack of resources over time has shown stress in gangs. And for example, Barrio 18 and lower-ranking members have been forced to resort to theft and extortion on their own outside of the, the organization because they're not getting any money. And this has uh, shown some concern for authorities that this might mean a splinter from Barrio 18 in the way that happened, or similar to the way that happened in Barrio 18 in El Salvador, where there are two factions, Sureños and Revolucionarios. And what about in Mexico? So it's very different. In Mexico, basically, it's business as usual. The pandemic did not show any sort of concern to criminal organizations. Violence is still surging. Only during April and March and April, 6,000 people were killed during the initial phase of the quarantine. Only this last weekend, 
around 55 people were slain in three states. So they are basically doing the same thing. And as Tuesday said, criminal organization in many places here in Mexico and in Salvador have shown to be more robust and to be very resilient to these shocks. But in, in Guatemala and Honduras, it's not the same story. So you have to take to analyze each case to see what have been the results. But I think overall, criminal organizations have shown very good adaptability to these external shocks. Tuesday, do you want to jump in? Um, I actually had a question for Guillermo. There was a lot when we were originally looking at some of the systemic factors of vulnerability to COVID around health sector corruption and the fact that I think both in Latin America, but actually maybe Joyce also in Kenya and in Africa, that there were systemic foundations to the health sector that would make them very vulnerable to organized crime in the illicit economy. Have we seen that play out over the course of the last three months? Yeah, corruption is part of Latin America. It has definitely shown an important face in the region, but it won't be, I think, the major imprint. The pandemic has definitely provided an ideal excuse to become part of a corruption scheme, as government have been forced to expedite buying procedures to provide protective gear for medical personnel, medical supplies, ventilators to face the pandemic, which in turn has created opportunities to illegally profit from it. For example, just last month, in Mexico, 1 million N95 masks with a market value of around $3 million were stolen and then recuperated by the police, or a scandal was unveiled because ventilators were bought at an overprice of $75,000 each, which was unveiled by the press. And a similar situation has occurred in Honduras, where civil uh, civil society organization ASJ has shown important irregularities and lack of transparency in the purchase of medical equipment for over $80 million. So yes, I mean, it's it's across the board. I think that the pandemic has, in a way, enabled corruption schemes to, to become part or to surface with ease. But I would not say this is the, the major imprint. I, I would say that it will be the, the adaptability of criminal organizations, the lack of supplies and and the rush of governments to get supplies which has in turn enabled corruption and these crossing lines of criminal governance and governance from the state to mingle or or to become a a, a strange mix thank you guillermo joyce if i can turn to you what have you seen across eastern southern africa as Tuesday mentioned, there's a lot of organized crime, especially in terms of the health sector. Kenya and East Africa in general, there's been a lot of stealing of equipment donated by China, for example. Just the other day, the Kenyan government was investigating a case where masks worth about $2 million that were gotten from China got disappeared at the, at the airport, so they can't trace the donation that Jack Ma, the philanthropist, gave out to Kenya to help in the fight against coronavirus. And this is not new because earlier on when Kenya, when the outbreak started in Kenya and Kenya was going into lockdown, we got a case where German was complaining that six million masks had disappeared from the Kenyan airport. So it's becoming a new norm where we see a lot of 
corruption, especially in the government sector, where either the health ministry is trying to enrich themselves through the donations that we get either from China or from other individual organizations. And this cuts across the region. On the flip side, we see a lot of staff working in our hospitals. For example, they end up not having the correct personal protective equipment. So we've seen doctors on Goslo because either they don't have masks or protective suits or isolation guns and thermometers. And in one case scenario, there was a nurse was seen walking in a hospital wearing a trash bag, which didn't auger well with people because if the donations are available, they couldn't be able to reach the people who they were intended. I remember that earlier in the podcast series, during our first podcast, in fact, that you mentioned about the rise in counterfeit pharmaceuticals impacting the health sector in the region. Can you tell us about that? We've seen a lot of fake sanitizers. Kenya at one point banned 28 sanitizers in the market. And we've seen a lot of fake testing kits and we've seen a lot of fake masks, which have put people more at risk of getting corona. I think one of the other things that has been noticed in relation to the health sector and the corruption in the health ministry was there's been a rise of fake tenders being floated out. For example, a few months ago, there was a man who lost 37 million Kenya shillings because he was given a fake tender to supply the health ministry with masks and gloves. He was linked with allegedly officials from the Ministry of Health, where he was even given a local purchase order. And at one point, he was forced to pay a bribe for about $2.3 million for the deal to be sealed. And it took time before he realized that he was being conned by the officials in the health ministry. So there's been a lot of exposure in terms of looking at what the health ministry is doing and the services they're offering. And there's been a lot of organized corruption, especially between very many senior key government officials in this pandemic. Thank you very much, Joyce. And staying with counterfeits, as we heard earlier in the series, it's the biggest of all illicit markets and also one that has been in the spotlight due to shortages in PPE, personal protective equipment. Lias, what about in Europe? Yeah, so I mean, the issue of fake and counterfeit goods is one that countries all across the world are facing. We saw towards the end of March, I believe it was, in France, around 20, 23, 20,000, 23,000 masks were found in a, in a little van. And obviously they were seized. We've seen it also in the UK. There have been numerous investigations into counterfeit masks. And even I believe there was a case where investigators and police found there was a, a garage was actually selling fake COVID-19 testing kits. I mean, the statistics show that there has been an exploitation of the need for medical equipment, testing kits, personal protection equipment. Some local authorities have reported up to 40% jumps in complaints about these fake items. So it really is something that we've seen through our tracking of news articles right across the world it is something that we have seen everywhere. And just another thing, touching on still the sort of health systems and going back actually to what Tuesday said in her initial comments on how we've, we've seen the resilience of criminal actors and criminal groups, no more so, I think, than in the drug trade. And here you see the interaction between the drug trade and, and healthcare systems in the UK, at least, 
where because of restrictions, lockdown restrictions, where people, unless you were sort of what we call in the UK a, a key worker, you weren't allowed to, to leave the house apart from very specific reasons. So what we saw was that a number of street drug dealers would dress up in either nurses' uniforms or doctors' uniforms, or they would wear NHS badges, so National Health System in the UK badges, so that if police saw them, they would assume that they were obviously health workers, and so they would be allowed to be walking around. And then that is how they would then sort of go unnoticed. So we have seen this interaction between healthcare systems and the exploitation of, of people's fears that they're, they're desperate to buy these tests and they're desperate to buy face masks and criminal actors really have exploited that fear. Thank you very much, Liaz. Health systems, of course, around the world have been hit by the crisis and counterfeit pharmaceuticals are not the only issue, of course. In the last couple of episodes, we took a real look at the impact of corruption on societies. So, Anna, returning to you with Brazil, a country that is really struggling to contain the virus at the moment. What impact has corruption had on the health system in Brazil? So the public health system is an open space for corruption in Brazil. And this was true before COVID-19. In the case of procurement, for example, it was already used as an avenue for misusement of the public money. Public health care system is reported to lose more than 14 billion of reais due to fraud, briberies, and other illicit activities. And with the pandemic, this problem can be even worsened. I think organized networks could definitely feel more privileged in a position to pursue their private interests due to the flexibilization on the rules regarding public purchasing because of the state of emergency. For example, last month, the federal police of Rio de Janeiro opened an investigation to verify the existence of a corruption system involving a social organization which was hired to build a campaign hospital, which was going to be used to receive COVID-19 patients. There's also suspicions that in this contracting, there were overpricing and purchasing respirators and other medical supplies. So I really think that it's definitely a challenge that is seen in Brazil at the moment. Yeah, the situation in Brazil is really worrying at the moment, and we'll come back to that later in the podcast. Thanks, Anna. So Joyce, if we turn back to you, we've heard that the damage to the global economy from COVID has been significant already. What impact has COVID had on human vulnerability and poverty in your region of Eastern Southern Africa? One of the biggest impacts was the stopping of income streams of many of the different people in different countries. As with other regions, human pause came immediately with the announcement of the presence of COVID. And then with such, they became essential, such as food became increasingly expensive. And for regions such as East Africa, there was a lot of people already struggling to make ends meet. So it made the situation particularly very difficult. There's a research that was done by Daily Nation, Daily Nation, a Kenya newspaper, which indicated that in Kenya alone, one million people have lost their jobs due to COVID. And this is quite a significant population. On the flip side, we've seen people really trying to make ends meet. And so as a result, we've seen Kenyans violating the curfews and Ugandans engaging in police fights just as a means to protect their livelihoods, which has not ended well. For example, in Kenya, police have killed 15 people while implementing the curfews. And in Rwanda, two people have been killed implementing the curfews. 
on the flip side, what has happened is there's been a lot of rise of gangs, especially. We could say that criminal activity has really increased, especially during the rush hours, because the gangs know that if we come at this particular hour, for example, 15 minutes towards the start of the curfew period, there's been a significant number of either armed robbery or carjackings. Thank you very much, Joyce. Nomal, the US Bureau Chief for the Straits Times, you'd like to add something to that? Yeah, um, I just wanted to bring up a couple of examples. If you look at the United States, actually, minorities have been really badly hit. Now, I was shocked to find out that the Navajo Nation, one third of the population of people, residents of the so-called Navajo Nation, which is the size of a small state in itself, doesn't have access to running water or electricity. So, for example, when the the health guideline is you must wash your hands frequently and whatnot, and you don't have water, you can't do that, right? And there are tremendous underlying comorbidities in that population because of generations of neglect of basic health. And another statistic, which is pretty stunning, if you look at the city of Washington, D.C., the capital, right? 46% of D.C.'s population is African-American. 74% of mortalities from COVID-19 are African-American in D.C. And that statistic is sort of mirrored in some other places, for example, parts of Chicago, which also has a prominent African-American population. And the reason is that underlying health conditions are pretty bad in that population. Obesity, high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, and you name it. Now, all these things are pretty well known and studied. But what the pandemic did was highlight and exacerbate these existing underlying vulnerabilities of particularly of minority populations. And that has been quite stunning to see, actually, in, in, a, in a rich country like the US. Thank you very much, Nirmal. Anna, can we turn to you again? What about in Brazil? In terms of uh, human vulnerability and poverty, which are concerning issues in Brazil as well, I can think about the large population that is either unemployed or in a homelessness situation now in Brazil. The economic recession brought by the virus adds to the already existing political and economic crisis that Brazil is facing. And it's safe to say that the virus is putting limitation to job opportunities, which poses an obstacle to informal workers and homeless individuals to getting their livelihoods. But I think that it's not only this population that is particularly vulnerable. I can think about the migrants coming from Venezuela. COVID escalated the severe social vulnerability that they are facing. There's been reported increased cases of xenophobia and discrimination. And the measures implemented by some governments in closing the borders because of the virus can increase this problem. Despite being a potential violation of non-refoulement rule, in my opinion, it risks some criminal activities such as trafficking and smuggling. Thanks, Anna. One of the worries during the past few months is that governments across the world have passed emergency powers or have used the temporary suspension of attention that they are receiving to commit human rights abuses. Nirmal, have we seen anything like that in South and East Asia? Yeah, it varies, of course, from country to country, depending on what kind of leadership and government system there is. I mean, you have some countries with a hybrid system where you have a sort of hybrid military slash democratic government. And you have countries where you have a high degree of of trust in government, of social acquiescence in government measures. 
We have seen that opinion polls in Japan have shown that the public actually wants the government to take tougher measures to curb coronavirus. Singapore is held up as an example of how to deal with the coronavirus, very successful, very good in surveillance and monitoring. China, of course, is a surveillance state already way before the pandemic, and that has now been exacerbated, and China moved with this national security law, which impinges on the security and rights of the people of Hong Kong, which is, of course, a part of China. But it had this sort of one country, two systems thing, which is now being been significantly eroded. You have authoritarian figures like Hun Sen in Cambodia assuming much greater emergency powers. You have, you have India where authorities have gone after journalists for uh, alleged misreporting on COVID-19 related issues. Now, these are, these are cases where if a journalist makes a mistake and or corrects it or something, that's quite normal in the normal course. But in these cases, you've had, you have authorities filing charges, criminal charges in some cases against journalists, which is very, very alarming. This is in India. And in India, of course, you have the much, much more large-scale issue of what happened during the lockdown, which is when you had billions of migrant workers forced to leave the cities in a reverse migration to the countryside without transport, without any assistance whatsoever, at least in the early days. Then the government sort of scrambled to provide that assistance, which in many cases was inadequate. So the, the big question here that remains is, will this be accepted by populations as a sort of new normal going forward? The new, new powers that governments have assumed or are proposing that they should get, they should acquire, will that be considered okay now going forward? in light of the pandemic, right? I mean, that is the big question which people are worried about. With some of these systems which are prone to abuse of populations of certain groups of people, will they actually become permanent and become part of a so-called, you know, quote-unquote, new normal going forward? And that is of serious concern in many of these countries. Thank you very much, Nirmal. Liaz, you wanted to come in? So I think just touching on um, what Nirmal was talking about in terms of human rights abuses, what we've seen, obviously, across the world is that there have been numerous reports of excessive use of violence by law enforcement. Now, we've seen this in a number of countries across Africa, in Uganda and Nigeria, for example. We've also seen it in Central America, but it's not limited to those regions. And we have seen it in Europe as well. In France, there have been numerous reports and videos have circulated on social media of the police using quite heavy-handed tactics in enforcing lockdown restrictions. And for the most part, these tend to be in the poorer neighborhoods and more vulnerable communities. Instances of excessive force, of harassment, verbal abuse. And actually, Amnesty International released a statement saying that these, the ongoing situation in, in France was a violation of international law relating to human rights. I think, again, it's something we have seen across the world in terms of how law enforcement have been using the sort of extraordinary powers that they have been granted in light of the extraordinary circumstances of COVID-19 as a, as a sort of a cover for human rights abuses. And Guillermo, what about in Latin America? Well, the main issue is the lack of access to healthcare or the strains that healthcare systems have shown and also the vulnerabilities that victims of violence have been showing during the pandemic. 
because, for example, in Mexico, the budgets have been cut, especially to victim attention systems, which puts additional stress on them because they cannot access the justice they are seeking or looking for their loved ones or gaining access to justice. So this is one example of what's going on in, in Central America. In El Salvador, as I said, there's been a strain of criminal governance and state governance looking, going back and forth between who's going to enforce curfews and how they do it. In El Salvador, President Bukele has been very strong or has ruled the, the, the curfew with an iron fist. Uh, separating families, not letting people go back to their countries or go out from El Salvador and, and not gaining being able to go out and seek basic goods and or, or food. In Honduras, there has been military and national police were very good at enforcing the curfew, but there has been reports of these being developed in a way that has stressed the human rights of many people. So in Latin America, I, I would say in Central America and Mexico, it's the balance between enforcing and curfew and letting people make ends mean, for example, in the means midst of a curfew has been the key factor. Thank you, Guillermo. Joyce, would you like to come in there? There's been a lot of backlash on truck drivers across the region, people moving goods from Tanzania to Uganda to Rwanda because it's a once trip. So most traders move their goods from Zambia to either Rwanda or Uganda. So there's been a lot of on and offs where truck drivers are being accused of being the ones who are spreading their COVID-19 infections. And so these drivers who transport essential goods, especially to Uganda and Rwanda and Burundi, have turned out to be attacked and either by local populations or by officers manning different border points. And it's brought really a big stalemate between different governments, for example, Kenya and Tanzania. Thank you very much, everyone, for your answers there. Many of the problems that we have seen over the preceding months, some of which we have discussed today, are sadly present in Brazil right now, which is also considered the current epicentre of the pandemic. In fact, so many of these issues are present within Brazil that we're actually going to put together a show focusing solely on the country soon. But Anna, given this, what are your thoughts on the situation in Brazil at the moment? Yes, Jack, indeed. Due to a history of systemic corruption and complex organized criminal activities, especially related to drug trafficking, the Brazilian case sort of illustrates some of the discussions that we had today. We have spoken about how victims of criminal governance are even in a greater situation of vulnerability due to the virus, how public health system can be blooded by corruption and fraud, and how the virus affects hugely Brazilian economy. But uh, this is not all. The problem of violence and security of the population is also an ongoing and alarming one in Brazil. Brazil is reported to be one of the deadliest countries in the world, and the number of violent deaths is often related to the action of organized crime. Even when, because of COVID-19 measures and lockdown measures, we thought that restrictive of movement would decrease the number of deaths, 
it was reported that last April, in the middle of quarantine, Brazil had an increase of 8% in the number of killings in comparison to the same period last year. So the reason for that is still unclear. However, it could be that criminal groups would be more comfortable in engaging in fights because of the invillages of law enforcement or maybe because they are fighting for a resource due to the disruption in the supply chains. And also, police operations in communities are even more deadly, and the population is caught in the crossfire. There was also some concerns regarding violence against Amazon forest protectors who were fighting, for example, logging gangs. And as we speak, Brazilian death toll increases with more than a thousand deaths per day. And the number maybe is even higher than that because there is lack of widespread testing and poor reporting. The president has already cited some economic concerns in order to oppose social isolation, even though the population is against the majority of it. I think in all this chaos, the consequences of the impact that the virus can cause in illicit economies in Brazil are far-reaching and it still needs to be analyzed and developed. The question is also how these economies will operate in the aftermath of the crisis. I can think particularly in the situation where medical supplies will be needed for the treatment of the disease or the cure. Counterfeit medicine is not new to Brazil, so I think it could open space for corruption and commercialization of counterfeit medicaments, for example. Overall, I think the challenges that Brazil is facing now are unprecedented and much analysis will be done to analyze those markets. Thank you very much, Anna. And as I said before, we'll be doing a more comprehensive podcast specifically on the issues within Brazil, organized crime and COVID in the next couple of weeks. Tuesday, turning back to you as Deputy Director of the Global Initiative, how important was it that as an organization, we followed the developments in organized crime throughout this COVID crisis? And then what's next? Well, for us as an organization, it's been an extraordinary exercise in trying to capture such a fast-moving situation. I mean, we started with, well, what are the immediate impacts? What are the border closures doing? What are the criminal groups doing? What are the scams? What are the frauds? And then progressively moved into much larger questions around governance and economics and corruption and poverty and vulnerability, which are really important and I think here to stay for a long time. The point we're at now is one still where the trajectory is unclear. We had imagined that three months would give us a quite strong sense of what was going on, that we would be able to have a understanding of what the trends and major impacts are. And I think we were wrong in that. There is still a lot of volatility and evolution depending on how the virus evolves, but almost less how the virus evolves, but how states respond to it. So, you know, we're recording this at the tailing off of some of the Black Lives Matter protests and the discussion around security sector reform and the role for security institutions is a huge debate. And for us, when we're dealing with a transnational security threat, of course, that's a very impactful conversation. How do you think the conversation and focus around organized crime and COVID has developed over the past few months? 
a lot of our offices are Europe-based, so we were very Europe-centric in initial conversations. A lot of the discussion around the illicit economy focused on its impact in destination markets. So are people getting their drugs? Are people being scammed? How much time are they spending online viewing pornography, which might include unwilling victims of sexual exploitation? These were some of the things that we were thinking about whilst we were experiencing the lockdown ourselves. But the other half of the GI is in the field in places which are both sources and transit zones, as well as destinations for a lot of the illicit economy. And there the conversations have been different and are really only evolving now as we see peaking of virus transmission in Latin America. We see huge waves of transmission across sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia, which is now entering arguably what might be the second wave. It's another set of conversations for them. We are trying to keep tabs with our field networks who are dealing with the reality of living on quite remote borderlands, which are very underserved in terms of government services, but also underserved in terms of national security. So how are they managing to manage trans-border lives where their economies and their livelihoods have a foot across both borders at a time when perhaps their government is instituting an unprecedented level of control over those communities? For migrants in communities where irregular migration facilitated by human smuggling is a core form of resilience to environmental shocks, what does this mean to them? I mean, climate change hasn't gone away, natural disasters haven't gone away, and the means of resilience are being curtailed by the fact that we're curtailing movement. So another set of important questions. I think what we are finding now as an organization is where it felt weekly reporting was important to us at the beginning and it would be an appropriate way of capturing something that was very fast moving. Now we need something slower and more reflexive that gives her time to analyse and think through what the longer-term implications are. Thank you very much, Tuesday. Tuesday Ritano, Deputy Director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. That's it for this episode of The Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime. Thank you very much to Anna Paula, Nirmal Ghosh, Liez Tagziria, Guillermo Vasquez, Joyce Kimani and Tuesday Ritano. We've spoken about a whole range of topics during the past few months. Cybercrime, human smuggling, counterfeits, cocaine and heroin trafficking, the illegal wildlife trade, human trafficking and corruption. I hope that through this series of podcasts, we've demonstrated how interconnected illicit markets and networks are, how they corrupt societies and exploit crises such as the one we're all living through right now. And as I said earlier, as the epicenter of this crisis moves to Brazil, In the next couple of weeks, we'll be releasing a podcast special focusing on a range of issues we find in the most populous country in South America. For a more comprehensive understanding of these topics, head over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net, where our analysts and wider network of over 500 experts work tirelessly to help us understand these important issues. So until next time, this is the Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. During the 21st century, thousands of criminal assassinations have occurred worldwide. They produce a butterfly effect of trauma locally, nationally, regionally and globally. 
Despite these efforts to silence, criminal assassinations can be a source of hope and community resilience. He had a fire in him. He couldn't stand corruption, and he wouldn't stop after exposing it. She was such a force of nature that when I first met her, I came away a bit shaken, a bit intimidated. He was a very pleasant, modest, and humble person who dreamt about a time when all criminals would pay for their deeds. She taught us the fear paralyzed actions of the people. We will never give up, even if we got killed, even if they murder us. They didn't die. They multiplied. Thousands of brave souls have paid with their lives because they refused to tolerate criminal governance. In 2019, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime commissioned approximately 50 profiles of persons assassinated across the world under the Faces of Assassination project. These profiles highlight places where organized crime has permeated political, cultural and economic sectors of society. Check out our website and join the campaign.